We're in Acts chapter 24. the entire chapter and it says that the sermon is the entire chapter. I made it to verse 2 in my preparation so it will be verses 1 and 2. I changed everything around but I'll I'll read the entire chapter. Maybe we'll camp out here for a couple weeks. I don't know. Acts 24 um, verse 1. Hear God's perfect and holy word. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you obtained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way, and everywhere most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. We have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he's even tried to desecrate the temple, and and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands." ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there certainly shall be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation, if they should themselves have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeeds they found when I stood before the council." other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and conversed with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
God's word. Let's pray. A gracious God, you are a God of grace. You are very slow to anger. You superabound in compassion and mercy and kindness upon wicked and evil people, people like the ones that we read about in this passage and people like us, Lord, people like me. And you take evil people and you make them holy people by the blood of the Lamb. Help me, Lord God, present the gospel, joy and hope and peace in you, Jesus Christ. And Lord God, help me present um, the truth of man as you present him to us, uh, unregenerate man uh, before us in this passage, uh, that we would um, take notice of what you declare about our, our great need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned last week that I was quasi-considering camping out a little bit in Acts chapter 23. There's a lot more than we looked at last week. There is in chapter 23, I'll just say this if you caught it last week, there's a whole section on vows and improper vows. And I think that would make a better Sunday school lesson or a Wednesday night study. Difficult for me to preach pastorally, just to be honest with you, so, so I jumped over it. But it is there, lawful and unlawful vows. And then today, it, it says in your bulletin, the title, Paul Testifies of Christ Before Felix. That is true. This is the third trial that we find the Apostle Paul in. That's true. What I, I've changed the title to this, and it's going to be primarily what precedes the arraignment, and then verses 1 and 2 is the arraignment of this third trial. And so it's kind of, um, the, the, the title will be uh, con conceptually showing us what we find here. It's the public, orderly, and legal, in quotes, hatred of Christ. Uh, public, orderly, and legal hatred of Christ, Christ Jesus, as we see him being hated via his gospel um, servant. That's what's going on. So the doctrine that I want to look at this morning is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is being put on trial again, and he's being accused of crimes, and the crimes that he's going to be accused of really stem from the fact that he's been faithful to the word of God both the word of God generally, law and gospel, and specifically the gospel of the cross. He's been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's being lied against. They're saying he's doing things that he's not doing, but he's here because he's been faithful to the gospel. So the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is on trial again. He's accused wrongly again. He's under the threat of death again. And then behind that, which I'm going to argue further, is when we see Christ's servant, this guy, Paul, being put on trial, it's Christ who's being put on trial. So he comes in the name of Christ, he comes with the word of Christ. So when we see Paul being put before, previously he's been put on trial before Jews, and now he's being put on trial before Gentiles, accused by Jews. This is Christ being put on trial. That's what's going on. This is God being put on trial by man. Christ being put on trial by man. Christ's servant being put on trial. So I will... I'll try to flesh that out as we go along. But I, I want to just develop that thematically as we look at the particular sermon that the Lord Jesus Christ is being put on trial by a man. Now, by this, just generally, the notion of man putting God on trial or man putting God's Christ on trial or the man who preaches Christ, we're being taught something very basically. And we've, we've looked at this a lot. And I... I've prayed a lot about this sermon. I've worked a ton. There, I have a minister, uh, um, Professor Bill Shisko. He used to tell his wife on Saturday, don't bother me, I'm pregnant with twins. <laughs> I, I, I'm travailing until I can deliver my twins, meaning his sermons. 
And my wife said, well, do you feel that way? And I said, to tell you the truth, by Saturday night, I'm half crazed. I'm chomping at the bit. Like, I can barely sleep before I preach. So this particular sermon, it's a heavy-duty one, and I, but we're Christians, so I don't, want, I don't want to leave here thinking, flog, flog, boy, this is a bummer. Why did I come to church? So it's here for our instruction. I think it's here to show us what God in Christ has saved us from. We were these people, is, is the tact that I will take. This is what use the moral law is for the regenerate, if you know your larger catechism. So this passage will reveal the two classes of people that exist in the world. There's only two classes of people. It's not white, black, brown, yellow, uh, political persuasion. It's none of that. Christ is the, the, the touchstone that will dictate who and what we are. In other words, this. There's only two classes of people. Those people who put Christ on trial and those people who receive the Lordship. Christ tries us, as it were. So people who reject Jesus Christ in people that receive Jesus Christ. People that reject Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, put him on trial. We deny your cross, we deny your blood, we deny your word, we deny your law, we deny your servants. Those are people that put Christ on trial. And for a person that were, is to die in that estate, rejecting Jesus, again, this is true what I'm telling you, but this is what we've been freed from. If you die rejecting Jesus as the Christ, he himself will reject you. That's in Matthew chapter 25. Like, depart from me. So the people that think, like right now, oh, I can, you know, what, what is the, the phrase from the Old Testament uh, for God tells, what is it, Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or one of those guys or the fellow after Nebuchadnezzar, um, Darius or one of them, I wage you in the balance, many, many, tekelu parson, and you're, you're found wanting. God says to the pagan king. But right now, the unbeliever, they weigh Jesus Christ in his truth, in his gospel, in the balance, and they say, we find you, Jesus Christ, wanting, lacking. For all people that die in that estate, Christ will weigh them in the balance and find them lacking, eternally so. So this passage reveals, are we those that reject Christ and try Christ and condemn Christ or are we those that receive Christ in his lordship? Does that make sense? So this reveals the two kinds of people. This is why I don't think we should get, of course, we're, we're ramping up the political season and all of that. Oh boy. All of that. Whatever we are politically, whatever we are politically, I think it was J.C. Rowell said my favorite, favorite axiom, political axiom is Christ is king. Christ indicates who and what we are, not the other things. I'm not arguing against the other things. I'm not arguing against the other things. But, but our relationship to Jesus Christ indicates who and what we are before God. This passage reveals that. Um, those for and those against the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. Now, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being rejected as the gospel servant is being rejected. And I will say this. The gospel has two smells. This is a Second Corinthians chapter two, I think fifteen through seventeen, something like that. It, it has either the aroma of life to those busy being saved; those are the elect that God, the Holy Spirit, gives faith, and we say, "Thou Son of David, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me." They're saved by the gospel, but the gospel also has another smell, and it's the aroma of death. And, and therefore, when the gospel comes, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the person says, "No, thank you." 
then that is a stench of everlasting death. That person will die in their sins. And my point with that is this. This passage will not only reveal the two type of people in the world, it's an expression of what I would call judicial hardening. That's That's a technical theological term, judicial hardening. This comes from Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus Christ quotes Isaiah 6 and 9. Excuse me real quick. He quotes 6 and 9, where he says, the Jews, they keep hearing, they keep seeing, but they keep rejecting. Therefore, they're going to be even harder. They're going to be even blinder or deafer or dumber. Judicial hardening. Um, What would be another passage? Romans 1 has some judicial hardening. But here's what I mean. If the gospel does not convert a person then it will increasingly make them harder and angrier against the gospel. That's judicial hardening. That's what's happening here. The Jews have had, this is a Romans 3, 1 through 3. They, they, have the, they have the Bible, they have the law, they have the gospel. They hear it, they hear it, they hear it, they hear it. No, 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 no. God is giving them over, this is a Romans chapter 1, to a reprobate mind. I've given you the gospel. You've put my son on trial. You've put my son's gospelers on trial. It's a terrifying thing to sit under the reign of the gospel and not produce any gospel fruit. It will make you harder. It will embitter you against the gospel. And this is true. If a person's not converted by the gospel and they repeatedly are confronted with it, if they could tell you truthfully what's in their mind, in their heart, what's 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 in their mind, in their heart, They do not like it at all. If they are not converted, they want to put Christ on trial and say his cross is not the only way. They want to put his law on trial. Uh, The law is not holy. It's not good. It will make them increasingly hard against the truth of God's word. And so we find that also, that putting Christ on trial by the Jews who had the gospel from uh, Abraham onward, I would argue from Genesis 3.15 onward, but it will make them increasingly hard against the gospel. And um, this passage also, when we come to Christ's servant being put on trial for proclaiming the word, as I mentioned, it reveals the two classes of people, but it reveals to us, it reveals to us the tea and tulip, the total depravity of man. It reveals to us the nature of unconverted men. Most men, unconverted people, most unconverted people, if you ask them, are you good, morally good? They're very keen and very vehement to declare their own goodness. Are they not? Other people they can condemn. But if you ask them, what about you? And they'll say something, down deep, I'm really good. And if you challenge them on their goodness, they get really mad. This passage of man putting God on trial reveals to us what the Bible says about the nature of unregenerate, unconverted man. This is man. Unconverted man wants to put God on trial. Unconverted man says to Jesus Christ, you are not the way, the truth, and the life. There are many ways to heaven. You are wrong. I am right. That's Isaiah chapter 5. Is that chapter 5 or chapter 1? Chapter 5? They call evil good and good evil. That's this. So this is natural man. And many times people, when they're confronted with who and what they are before God, they're very quick not only to to affirm their goodness, but also the way that they see their goodness is man to man. 
is their duty towards their fellow man. I help the poor, I do this, I do that. That's a second table of the law. And what they're forgetting is the first table of the law. They think they're good because they think they do good to their fellow man. But what about to God? What about to Jesus Christ? What's the greatest commandment in the Bible? To love God. Second is love man. So natural man is all, well, I'll do good to my fellow man. But you hate his Christ. How then can you be good? This reveals the real moral, spiritual nature of human beings apart from grace. Human beings apart from saving grace would put God, if they could, to use the English phrase, at the bar, to put him on trial. That's what the devil does. That's what the devil tempted our first parents to do. This reveals to us the nature of man, that unconverted man is, a, is against God. An unconverted man, as these men seek to put Christ's gospel -er on trial, which is to put Christ on trial, unconverted man seeks to be over God. They seek to be the judge. This is a James chapter 4. When we judge God's law, we actually judge the law giver. That's this. So unconverted man is against God. An unconverted man is against God's servant. And I'm making the case that as these people put Christ's servant, who is Christ is God come in the flesh, as they put him on trial and they want to murder Paul, which they will eventually murder him, this is the desire of their hearts, we are going to kill this man that tells us about this Jesus because we, we find this G Jesus in his cross obnoxious. So we're going to kill his herald because we want to kill the master. So as they treat the servant herald, Paul, that's really what they want to do to the master. You remember Jesus shows the solidarity that he has with his people in Acts chapter 9, actually in reference to the apostle Paul. <laughs> he says to Paul, why are, you, why are you persecuting what? Me. And who is Paul trying to kill? Christians. So Jesus Christ says, when you strike at my people, you're striking at me. We, we are the body of Christ. Christ is our head. We are the bride of Christ. Christ is our husband. To strike the bride is to strike the husband. To strike the body is to strike the head. And particularly in reference to these, these ambassadors, let's just say this were to happen. I mean, we, we are, this is a Matthew ch chapter 24. Root wars and rumors of wars. Do, are we not? I mean, literally, I'm hearing on the news people talking about, literally talking about World War III. Literally. They're having that discussion. Wars and rumors of wars. Read Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and read Matthew chapter 25 as well, Final Judgment. This is what we, this is, this is what we exist in. Jesus says this, the one, this is Luke 10, this is, this is why we can say when they put Paul on trial, this ambassador, they're putting the master, the king on trial. Jesus says in Luke 10, 16, the one who rejects, the one who listens to you, apostles, listens to me, says Jesus. The one who rejects you, apostles, rejects me. That's what's going on. If, we, if another country were to kill our ambassador, we would take that as what? It's an act of war. You're an act of war. So Paul is an official representative. He comes in the name of Jesus Christ. He comes with the word of Jesus Christ. And, and natural man, both Jew and Gentile, say, oh no, we are putting you 
on trial, ambassador. We're putting you on trial, Harold. And all the Herald has is, this is not my message. It's the message of my king, which is the king. God identifies himself with his word. It's his word. So yes, the servant is being put on trial, but man really wants to put Christ on trial. Unconverted man really want to murder Jesus Christ. And why can't they murder Jesus Christ any, uh, again? Because they already did it one time. In Revelation chapter 1, he's never going to die again. He's beyond their reach. So natural man does to the servant what they want to do to the master. That's this. And it, it reveals a lot. And now, as I mentioned before, rather than walk away thinking, wow, this is a real bummer, we were these people. The Lord Jesus Christ sends his gospelers to these kind of people. They hate God, they hate Christ, they hate holiness, they hate the cross, they hate his people, and they want to kill God and kill his people. We think, who would want anything to do with those kind of people? Jesus. Jesus has come to save some of those people. That would be us. Every time in our sin we said, I want my sin and I don't want God, that's this. That's this. And in addition, not only does it show us what we have been saved from and have been now changed into those who don't put God on trial, those who submit to the Lordship, it not only shows us that, but it also shows us spiritual reality. It shows us spiritual reality. We don't have to walk around wearing these, like, I don't know, whatever rose-colored glasses or non-rose-colored glasses. This is reality. These are the people that are out there. They want to put God on trial. And so then our answer to them, or the, the, uh, the need, our presentation of the need to them, is not political, it's not educational specifically, it's not pharmaceutical specifically, it's evangelical. The need for people like this, I will, I'll put Christ on trial and I'll kill him, you can't, you can't politics your way out of this problem. What's the answer for this? The gospel is the answer. Christ came to seek and to save people, some of the people, like this. What, what did the Jews cry? All of them. Crucify, crucify. Now some were reprobate, I understand, and they were judged. For, so they're putting a Christ on trial, but by their trial, they're, they're being put on trial. I get some of them will be judged rightly. But it's the two smells of the gospel. One to salvation, one to judgment. And so it tells us what, really what reality is all about. So this is... Um, this is unholy man finding Christ um, uh, lacking. There is a, I, I just will tell you this. When you see natural men putting Christ on trial, um, I used to listen to, I still do, I suppose, eclectic music. And there's a guy, his name is Cab, C-A-B, Calloway. He was popular like in the 40s. And Minnie the Moocher, those kind of songs. St. James Infirmary was another one that he had. Um, there's a song that he had, Ain't Necessarily So. It is a blasphemous song. And he reveals that he is a fellow, and remember I said everyone proselytizes, we either proselytize against Christ or for Christ. In his song, Ain't Necessarily So, which was like the 40s, he has something like this. This is this. Is this. I take the gospel whenever it's possible with a grain of salt. He's mocking it. And he says, it ain't necessarily so that the things you read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. That's the opening line. That's this. 
This is man in a jaunty kind of a way. This is man putting God on trial. Your word's not true. This is man. I, I take the gospel whenever possible with a grain of salt. That's this. That's putting the cross on trial and finding it lacking. That's this. That's what's going on repeatedly in the life of um, the Apostle Paul. I mentioned this is, we're just looking at kind of things leading up to this third trial. I mentioned the third trial. The Apostle Paul has five trials, five official trials, maybe four official, one non-official, and then one that's not mentioned, which is the sixth trial, but it's implied. The first trial that the Apostle Paul has, where he's presenting the gospel, natural man says, no way to Jesus Christ. And Paul keeps going, because that's what he's called to do, is he's before the crowd of Jews. He's before his fellow Jews, and he says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And what do they try to do to him at the end of that trial? They try to kill him. And then he's rescued by Claudius Lysias. And then he has the second trial. And this is an official trial before the Sanhedrin. And at the end, he he says, Jesus is the long-awaited prophet from from Moses to Malachi. All the prophets promised Jesus, the Christ. And then as soon as he said, Jesus will save, our Messiah will save Jews and Gentiles, what did they try to do to him at the end of that second trial? Kill him again. Now, this is the third trial. In the book of Acts, you have five trials. The third trial is Paul on trial before Festus, the Roman governor of Judea. He's at Caesarea right now, which is a city up on the coast. And then after this, he's going to be on trial before another governor, Festus. And that will be five. And then the sixth trial that the Apostle Paul has is alluded to in Acts chapter 28. Um, Eusebius, and Eusebius is ecclesiastical history. He's a, he was an archbishop. He writes about it in the 300s. And the final trial that the Apostle Paul will have, remember, he's testifying of Jesus to rulers, Jewish rulers and Gentile rulers, Religious rulers, the Jews, civil rulers, the Gentiles. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is Paul. And the sixth trial will be uh, what? It's Paul on trial before what fellow? Caesar. Caesar. And I think the Caesar is the Emperor Nero. And the Emperor Nero was not a very nice fellow. And he wasn't very favorably disposed towards Christians. And the Apostle Paul, at the conclusion of his testimony, would seal his testimony. Remember the witness, the martyreo? He will seal his testimony with his blood. That's this. So all of this is revealing this is what man is. And we mentioned the two trials are before the Jews and then three trials before the Gentiles. People are so keen to do this. I know this is true. Not only do we divide upon political lines, we divide upon so-called racial lines, and even forget racial lines. In the land of my birth, if you're Italian, you're whatever. If you're Italian, you're Italian, you're up. If you're Irish and you're Irish, you get another couple of pluses. We, we do, it's just ridiculous how we kind of subdivide all over the place. Am I not right with this? I know I am. Th- these trials show this. Apart from saving grace, Jew is the exact same as a Gentile, apart from saving grace. If you said that to a Jew, which is what Paul said, what are they going to say to you? I am going to kill you. We are so much better than the Gentiles. If you say that we're on equal standing before God, I will kill you. (laughs) That's a murderer. 
So Jew and Gentile, apart from saving grace, they both come to the same conclusion when they hear Christ crucified, which is, we are going to kill his gospeler. No way. No way is Christ the only way, the truth, and the light. So it's the same. Again, this helps us not get crazy when people subdivide into various camps. The great need of everyone, it doesn't matter color, ethnicity, culture, political persuasion, the great need is this, which is what Paul got Paul in a gym. The Jews hated him, and the Gentiles hated him, but he has the words of eternal life. This is the answer. The answer is the same for everybody. Now, you might not present it the same way. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you meet a person that's a Jew, maybe he, would, he, he argued a certain way, which he, he did. If he meets a Jew, a Gentile, he argues a certain way, but it's always the cross. But it shows us the need for, of everyone is the same. Morally, uh, religiously, we are the same. And as I said, he's on trial before the Jews, he's on trial before the, the Gentiles. And I'm going to say this, I'm going to use a word. If you're Reformed, you know what I'm doing. If you're not Reformed, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to refer to the Jews as the church. I'm going to refer to the Gentiles as the state. The reason I'm referring to the Jews as the church is because God, through the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 7, calls the congregation in the wilderness, ecclesia, the church. So I'm calling them the church because God calls them the church. You understand what I mean. I understand the New Testament church kicks off in uh, Acts 1 and 2. But we have this. We have the church puts Christ's servant on trial, which is to say puts the gospel on trial. And then we have the state that puts Christ on trial. That is an apostate church, and that is an apostate state. And that's who Christ sends the gospel for. So lots of lessons here. us. When you come and people say, oh, and I, this is Mother Church, Holy Mother Church, Church saves, any of that, I would take them to this passage. <laughs> the church does not save. Christ saves. The church needs state saving. And when anyone says, oh, the state, and we can do this, and oh, the state, they were antichrist. They were apostate. They need saving. Both of them, Jews and Gentiles, condemn Christ. They condemn Christ's servant. Now the third, the third trial. Let's look a little bit at what precedes the arraignment in chapter 23, and then we'll look at the arraignment for the next 10 minutes. So the root. Acts 23, 31. This is the route leading up to the arraignment, the actual trial. The soldiers, in accordance with their orders from Claudius Lysias, they take Paul, they bring him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they return to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, Felix, they presented Paul to him. When he read it and asked from what province he was, he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive, getting, giving orders for you to be kept at Herod's Praetorium. So we start off in Jerusalem. It's like 70 miles from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. And uh, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, you go north, a little bit northwest on the coast. It's at the tip of Judea, Caesarea is. Antipatris is something like 20 to 25 miles before you get to Caesarea. So they're stopping for the night. So 70 miles, they t it starts off with 200 foot soldiers, 200, what is it, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, 200 uh, uh, foot soldiers. So 470 men, and Paul's on a horse. They, they, they're going to make sure the Jewish assassins don't kill him. And so they travel all the way to 
Caesarea. I'm going to say this as we look at just the general idea of what we learn by putting Christ's servants on trial, public trial. You've heard of the, the, uh, the, the, the common saying that um, the process is part of the punishment. You ever heard that phrase? The process is part of the punishment. And what we're looking at here is the public process of putting Christ's servant on trial is part of the punishment of the servant, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of the abuse of the Lord Jesus Christ's servant. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to say this, the public abuse. And this stands here, this is used by God to encourage God's servant, to encourage us, but also what God means for good, devil means for evil. Part of this public abuse and the, all of the, the, the difficulty that Paul has gone through, the devil uses these things to dispirit and discourage God's servants looking at Paul thinking, this is what happens to people that get out of line with the apostate church and with the apostate state. This is what happens to people that publicly, this is key, stand up and say, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The church will kill you and the state will kill you. This is a warning. This is in Acts 4 or 5. The devil wants to frighten Christ's servants into infidelity, into uh, inactivity. In, in other words, along these lines, this is what happens to public Christians. Th this goes on in our day right now. Right now, I, I hate to say it, our culture will say to us, oh, you can be a Christian. They, they don't, won't even say this. But they'll say something like this. You can be a Christian at the house. You better be a Christian at the house. You can't take it out of the house. You can't go to the schoolhouse. You can't go to the courthouse. You can't walk down the street. You better keep your Christianity at, at the house. The moment it's public like this, wham, that's the devil. That is the devil trying to frighten us into not living publicly for Jesus Christ. So that's the, 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 the root. Now the arraignment, and maybe in the future sermon I'll do this, Chapter 27 is chapter 24 is really interesting. Everything breaks out so neatly. This is why I thought I was going to originally take it. It's, a, it's literally so neatly diced up as a courtroom. You have the arraignment, the official um, commencement of the trial. You have the accusations brought forth. Then you have witnesses brought forth. Then you have the defense. Then you have the adjournment. So it, it runs just like a trial because it is a trial. But this is the arraignment. I want to look at a couple of the accusers because this shows us, one, what we, what we were before grace and the kind of people that are engaged against Jesus Christ. The people that make accusation against Christ's servant, Paul, they're all Jews. They come from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is constituted of Sadducees and Pharisees. And then we have um, the high priest makes their accusation. What's interesting to me, and this, this is interesting to me, is the men that should have been defending and promoting true religion, what are they doing? They're trying to destroy it. I'll give you a quote. The current pope I heard the other day gave this quote. He, 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 the, the phraseology that given by the announcer who was a Catholic, he said, this is the sanctified use of imagination. And the pope said something like this. I imagine that hell is empty. Is hell empty? You don't have to imagine anything. Read, read Mark chapter 9. 
is hell empty. Read, uh, read Revelation chapter 20 is hell empty. You don't have to imagine anything. Matthew chapter 25. So when someone says, I imagine something which is clearly not empty, is empty, and he's the Pope, what is that? This, that man should be promoting true religion, and instead he's espousing false religion. These Jews should be defending and promoting and preaching true religion, except what are they now? They are accusers of the brethren. Who is the accuser of the brethren? The devil. They're the devil's servants within the church. This is why, I know I just said it, but I even have reformed people that say this, and I don't know why, I just, it really, the church saves, Holy Mother Church. I had a guy in town talking Holy Mother Church with an 80-person church. I said, what are you out of your mind? Holy Mother Church. And they're keen to say, God is our father, but the church is our mother. I know Calvin supposedly said say this, whatever. I do not find that in the Bible. Christ, Christ, Christ saves. This is left, left apart from the grace of God. This is the church. And then you have, you have the high priest. And the high priest is essentially the pope of the Old Testament church. And this high priest, Ananias, if you've ever read Josephus, you can buy Josephus, well, it's a one-volume set. It's not as complete. So if you buy the one-volume set, it's not everything. But even his one-volume set, here's a quote about this high priest in Ananias. This is from Josephus. He write, He's a contemporary of, of Christ. Now, as soon as Albinus had come to the city of Jerusalem, he used all his endeavors and care that the country might be kept in peace, and this by destroying many Sicarii. Sicarii is daggermen, assassins. But as for that high priest Ananias, he increased in glory every day, and this to a great degree, he obtained a favor and esteem of the citizens. He was a great hoarder of money. And then it goes on to say at the end of that quote that he was robbing all of the tithe of monies and foodstuffs from the other priests, and they were starving. This is Ananias. This is man. So look at the people that accuse Christ. <laughs> They're this guy. They're starving their fellow Jews, and they are complicit with their subjugators, the Romans. They're like the Vichy French. And these are the ones that put Christ on trial. And Josephus later says that the Samaritans complained to, um, to the emperor against Ananias, that he was so cruel, they wanted another, uh, they wanted another um, <laughs> uh, governor. And he... Um, he was assassinated. This fellow was assassinated. The Jews actually hunted him down because he was complicit. So this is the kind of um, person engaged against Christ and Christ's servant. Then we have this, um, this uh, lawyer. He's an attorney. So the Jews hire. He has a, a Greek name. Whether or not he's Greek, I don't know. They hire a professional lawyer to bring their uh, charges against uh, him. And then um, Felix finds out the, Felix is the, uh, the governor. Uh, Felix, who about Felix? Josephus also writes about Felix. Felix was a freed slave, him and his brother Paulus, P-A-L-L-A-S, I think. They were the uh, emperor's mother's slaves that she freed. And then he gave them the governorship, the emperor, and the emperor Claudius, I think it was AD 52. And so these men were f the court favorites. Felix was a court favorite. He was brutal. This guy was brutal. He would use these Sakari, these dagger men, to do all his dirty work. And this guy, Felix, actually used dagger men against the next high priest, Jonathan. He killed him. This is the guy who's trying Christ and Christ's servants. High priest is a murderer. 
the, the, the Gentile judge, murderer. These are the kind of people that Jesus Christ saves. But this is what the church is engaged against. And so he sees that uh, Paul is actually from Cilicia, which is up over Syria. So he's actually not from the region of Judea. So technically, Felix doesn't have to hear the case. He could, if he, if he wanted to, kick the case up 400 miles to the north to, uh, to the uh, region of Cilicia. The capital city of Cilicia is Tarsus. So rather than kicking it 400 miles to the north, he keeps the case. Why would he do that? The text will tell us why. He wants to do what group a favor? The Jews. If he kicks it up 400 miles, what does that mean for the people that bring accusation? The Jews have to take a 400-mile trip. Now, he governs the Jews, and he's wanting to keep them happy. So he wants to do them a favor. So he keeps the case that he doesn't have to hear, wanting to do them a favor so they do him a favor. This whole trial it has the appearance of legality. It has nothing to do with the truth. This trial has nothing to do with the truth. It has everything to do with power. It's the same thing with Christ. It has the appearance of legality. Religious legality before the Jews, uh, Gentilish legality before the Gentiles. It has the appearance of being lawful. It has nothing to do with the law. Nothing. This is an unlawful use of the law. But with a show to say, we're just doing... This is orderly. We're not a frenzied mob. We're not trying to tear Christ's servant apart like a frenzied mob. No. We have, a, we have priests in their clerical collar. We have a lawyer in his blue striped suit. We have a judge in his black robes. And it's all a sham. It's all a sham. Beloved, everyone that hates Christ, doesn't, they don't all look like cavemen. You can look like a caveman. You can be dressed in skins and you want to kill Christ and Christ's servants with a club like Cain in Genesis chapter 5. But what this passage shows us is sometimes the enemies don't look like cavemen. They look like what? Like priests, like lawyers, like judges. And I would argue the guy with a cleric's collar the, the, um, the, the lawyer with the blue striped suit, the judge, the, the, the doctor with the lab coat, they are the provocateurs of the guy with the club. I would argue people like this, these guys that look outwardly legal and outwardly orderly, they, they kill, they murder way more people. Way more people are killed with the law, they're killed with the needle, we're killed with the theory. You see what I'm getting at? So when we're looking at those that oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a sham. This has the appearance of orderliness. That, that is natural man. Natural man doesn't care about the heart. They only care about the outside. Inside is rotten as rotten can be. And so they will get the guy with the club to use the club, but the provocateur is the guy with the tweed suit or the pinstripe suit, or the black robe, or the white lab coat. That's the provocateur. They're holding the strings. That's these men. So, th so when he says, he knows, Felix knows that this trial is not about Paul being a lawbreaker. Law he believes Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander. The Roman commander writes him, he's done nothing wrong. What should Claudius Lysias, what should Felix have done once he get the Roman commander's letters back saying he's done nothing wrong? What should he have done? Let him go. 
But he doesn't let him go. Why? He wants to do the Jews a favor. Who does this sound like? I have found nothing wrong with this man. And then your wife comes to you and says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. And what did Pontius Pilate hear? If you don't kill him the way that we want, you are no friend of Caesar. And what did Pontius Pilate say? Not, I'm not just going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my life. Therefore, what I will do, I'll kill a Jew. The Jews want me to kill a Jew. I don't like Jews anyways. I'll kill a Jew to keep my own power. That is political pragmatism. The people before were religiously pragmatists. This is a John 11. If we don't kill Jesus, the Romans are going to come and take our nation away. Religious pragmatists. Pontius Pilate, Felix, political pragmatists. I have to kill him. Yeah, no problem. I'm not going to let him go. I want to do the Jews a favor so that they do me a favor. This trial has nothing to do with the truth. Man is a what, the Bible says. Psalm 116, I think verse 11. Paul quotes it in Romans 3. Man is a liar. We are a liar. These are the kind of people that Jesus Christ has come to save. So we, we, when we come here, we should take this to heart. And I do want to just mention about the folks that are trying Jesus. The, I would say these are those who hold a higher socioeconomic place in society the intelligentsia, those kind of people. Beloved, they put Christ and Christ's servant on trial. In actuality, they are being put on trial. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think, maybe, maybe I'm incorrect, but I think it's chapter 1. Where is the wise man? Right? Isn't that that? Where is the wise? Not many wise people. You, you watch people that oppose Christ. They hate Christ crucified. They hate faithful gospel preachers. Who are they? Are they the prostitutes? Are they the tax collectors? Are the, the, they the truck drivers? Who are the people that really dig their heels in? And this is this. The rich, the powerful, the wise. And they find the cross to be obnoxiously foolish. That's this. So, beloved, when you see an unbeliever and they say, well, I, I have six earned PhDs. Well, you're obviously smarter than me. Boy, howdy. Those are generally not the people that God saves. Why? They're too smart for Christ. <laughs> They're not too smart for Christ. They're too proud for Christ. They're too proud. They want their honor. They want their money. And, and the choice, really, and I'm going to say this, and I promise I'll be quiet. The choice in this trial is, is really simple. God or sin. Christ in sin. This is why the unbeliever really, 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 really hates the gospel. This is why they put the gospel on trial. Because the trial comes to them, the gospel comes to them and says, you are either going to pick my Christ or it's sin. You have to, you have to choose. Will it be Christ as the Savior from your sin, or will you have your sin? And because people love their sins so much, one has to die, and it's Christ. That's what's going on. That's the sinner. The sinner says, I will not have this man reign over me. I will have my sin. That's what the trial shows. 
And what I love about our Jesus, so many things. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us alone. Sometimes kids say to their mom and dad, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. When they're little, whatever. When they're big, leave me alone. Don't call me, leave me alone. Guess what? I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to take you to the throne room of God and you can't stop me. So there. <laughs> I'm going to pray my head off for you, you pain. We thank God he doesn't leave us alone. Am I not right with that? God will not leave us alone. God takes us from being these people. I weigh God's view on marriage in the balance. I weigh Jesus in the balance. I weigh everything in the balance. I weigh the Bible in the balance. And God comes to people like that. Paul. Us. But not everyone. Not everyone. Some people he leaves alone. And I'll close with this. Beloved, we either bend in the knee of Jesus Christ now, or we put Christ on trial now, but awaiting someday in the future, and I don't know when, it could be pretty quick, God and Christ will put everyone on trial. And it's not going to be a sham trial. It will be a real trial. Uh, may we prepare for such a day. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.